Our scripture reading this morning is a very brief one. It will be very familiar to most of you. It comes in the context of uh, the upper room discourse that uh, Jesus gave to his disciples the night uh, that he was arrested, the day before he was crucified. John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. You could hardly blame him if he forgot to leave it. I'm talking about Jesus and the promise that he made to his disciples to live them, to leave them his peace. After all, it was a hectic night and the next day was even worse. We could hardly blame him if he did forget to leave it. Shortly after Jesus made this promise to his disciples, he was arrested, tried, and then crucified. And they went into hiding for fear of their lives. Even though Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day and all authority was given to him in heaven and on earth, the disciples were left with a very tough row to hope. Almost right away, Peter and John were thrown into prison. After that, Stephen was stoned to death. And the Christians in Jerusalem were run out of town by the Jewish authorities. As near as we can tell, all of the disciples died a violent death, with the exception of John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos. According to Fox's book of martyrs, James the Great was beheaded, Matthew was killed by the sword. James the Less was clubbed to death. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. And Thomas was run through with a spear. The rest were crucified. The Apostle Paul was stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, starved, set upon by robbers many times and then finally beheaded. Where was the peace that Jesus promised to leave his disciples? Did he forget to leave it? Not at all. You see, Jesus made this promise and all of the promises that Jesus 
has made to his disciples and to us, he keeps. So where was this peace that Jesus promised to leave his disciples? It was within them. You see, Jesus did not promise his disciples peaceful lives. He did not promise them peacefulness. He promised them his peace, the kind of peace that comforts our hearts and frees us from all fear. It's an internal peace. That's why he says in this verse, not as the world gives do I give to you. The world strives for external peace, but it can never deliver on internal peace. That is something only Jesus can give us. So what is this peace that Jesus promised to leave his disciples? Well, it's made up of two major components. First of all, freedom from fear of God's judgment. And secondly, freedom from anxiety. First of all, this peace that Jesus promised to leave to his disciples was the freedom from the fear of God's judgment on their sinfulness. More than anything else, sinful people want to have peace with God. The human experience testifies to this. This is why mankind is so incurably religious. The word religion is a Latin word that means to bind back. Sinful people realize that they are alienated from a holy God and they want to be bound back. They want to have peace with God again, but they're consciences condemn them. They know that they are guilty before a holy judge who must judge all sin. So where is this peace going to come from? Probably more than anyone else in the world, Martin Luther wanted to find peace with God. As a monk, he was supposed to confess his sins to his father confessor every day. And Luther believed the teachings of the church that these religious observances could find him peace with God. Most of the monks 
uh, would just uh, go into the confessional for 15 minutes or so, and then they were done. Not so Luther. Luther would go into the confessional for up to four hours and confess all of the sins that he could think of that he had committed in the last 24 hours. He believed earnestly and sincerely that the religious observances that the church prescribed would find him peace with God. And he dedicated himself to those religious observances and nothing worked. Luther, through these religious observances, could not find peace with God. <clears throat> Excuse me. He despaired. He said, all I see is Christ, the angry judge, standing there ready to cast me into hell at any moment. You ask me if I love God, he said to his father confessor once. Love God? Sometimes I hate God. I spend hours in the confessional, confessing every sin I can think of, and I get five minutes of peace. I get the benediction of my father confessor. I go back to my cell, and as soon as I shut the door, I think of a sin I forgot to confess, and my peace is gone. On one occasion, Luther cried out from his cell to the gallows with Moses. I can't stand him. You see, Luther had studied the law. And he knew that the law required perfection in order to have peace with God. And he knew that he fell far short of that perfection. It was only as Luther studied the books of Romans and Galatians and came to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins, that on the cross he propitiated God's righteous anger against sinners, and that through faith in Jesus Christ alone, he could have the righteousness of Christ imputed to him and finally have peace with God. He said, as I understood it, and I realized that my salvation, my justification did not ultimately depend on my performance, on my righteousness, but it is given to me by the righteousness of Christ. As I understood it, and the light of the gospel came into my soul, the gates of paradise opened, and I walked through. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is the propitiation for our sins 
that pacifies a righteous and holy God's anger towards sinners that allowed Luther to finally have peace with God. This wasn't something that he could achieve in his own strength, even through religious observances. It's nothing that any of us can achieve in our own strength. It's been achieved by us, by God himself, through his son, Jesus Christ, voluntarily sacrificing his life for our sins. And through faith in that sacrificing, obtaining then the righteousness of Christ himself imputed to us who believe. I think it's significant in John chapter 20, when Jesus appears after his resurrection to the disciples in the upper room, that the first word he speaks to them is peace. And he repeats it. Twice, he says, peace. And then he shows them the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. He didn't do that to identify himself. He did that to confirm to them that a holy God's righteous anger against sinners has been propitiated, it's been appeased, it's been pacified, and God is no longer angry with us. John Murray, in his book on atonement, puts it this way. He said, the doctrine of the propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of this wrath. It was Christ's so to deal with the wrath that the loved would no longer be the objects of wrath and love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. And that, through faith in Jesus Christ, is what we are. The children now of God's good pleasure. This is the first major component of the peace that Jesus promised to leave his disciples. And the second major component of the peace that he promised to leave his disciples is freedom from anxiety. It follows from the first point. God is not angry with us. We no longer experience his retributive justice. We are the children of his good pleasure. He means us well. Remember, he didn't promise his disciples 
peaceful lives. He didn't promise them peacefulness. He promised them his peace. And that involves a freedom from anxiety. In the knowledge that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. That he is in control of this world. God reigns even now. And he orders things for our good. He means us well. A good example of this is found in Romans uh, chapter 15, verses 30 through 32, and then Philippians 4, 6 through 7. The Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Three requests. The first request, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea. He was not delivered from them. They turned him over to the Roman authorities. That my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. We're not sure how that service was accepted exactly. And the third request, that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. When Paul made his journey to Rome, it was as a prisoner. And he would remain as a prisoner in Rome for two years. And yet, it's while he's in prison in Rome, experiencing turbulent circumstances, that he writes this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul could write that from prison. So what do we have to be anxious about? Paul understood that Jesus had propitiated God's anger against us. That we were the children of his good pleasure. That he means us well, even in adverse circumstances. And so Paul could also write that familiar verse in 828, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. 
Elizabeth Elliot, the missionary, the wife of Jim Elliot, one of the martyrs in Ecuador many years ago, lived a very unpeaceful life. She experienced many adverse circumstances. Just a couple of those were the death of Jim Elliot. And then after remarrying, the death of her second husband. And yet she writes this, I realize when I review the story of my life that it is not as I would have predicted it or as I would have planned it if I had been in charge. But it has been ordered, regulated, controlled by his power and wisdom, the power of the God who coordinates the movement of 200 trillion molecules in a single cell, the God who controls perhaps 200 billion galaxies, who controls the thousands of events that affect my life, your life, and the life of every human being that has ever lived. It is ordered, regulated, and controlled by his mercy, ordered also by his love. I have loved thee with an everlasting love, he said, therefore with great mercy I will draw thee. Elizabeth Elliot experienced a lot of adverse circumstances, but she understood that God's anger towards us has been propitiated, that God is not angry with us, that he is in control and he controls all circumstances for our good. He means us well. And that freed her from any anxiety. More recently, I was reading about a young man who was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He's a father. He has several young children. And he wrote this. You know, there are some times when I say that life is just a can of worms. It doesn't make any sense at all. Why would I be hit with this at this time in my life? Where is God? And then I reflect further. I get back into my New Testament. I read again of the Gospels. I think of Jesus, what he said, what he was, what he has done. And my faith comes down firmly that I can trust him whether I ever live to see it on this side or not. He may be young, but he too has experienced and is experiencing adverse circumstances. But he understands that in Jesus Christ, his sins have been propitiated that God is no longer angry with him. He's not sick because he's experiencing retributive justice from God. God is in control. He doesn't understand 
what God is doing. But he rests in the truth of the gospel that God means us well. That he too is a child of God's good plan. These are the two major components of the peace that Jesus promised to leave to his disciples. He did not forget to leave it. It was a reality for them and it's a present reality for us. The world strives for external peace. And that's not a bad thing. Jesus was actually born during what is referred to historically as the Pax Romana. And many historians have argued that it's because of that external peace that the gospel was able to spread and to flourish as quickly as it did. External peace is a good thing. In 1 Timothy 2.2, we are told to pray for those in authority over us that we might experience peaceful lives. External peace is something that God is going to eventually bring about in this world. We read from Isaiah chapter 2 this morning about a time coming when implements of war will be changed into instruments of agriculture, of peace. And last week, Derek preached from Isaiah 11, where it speaks about the harmony in all creation that will be restored when Jesus Christ comes again. The external peace is a good thing, but let's not overlook the inward peace that Jesus has already delivered on, the inward peace that Jesus alone can give. It is peace with God, freedom from fear of God's judgment, and freedom from anxiety because Jesus even now reigns and controls all aspects of history to bring glory to him and to the Father and he means it all for our good. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we've already confessed that very often we don't appropriate your peace. Father, many of us still live in, judge, er, in fear of your judgment, believing that you treat us according to our sins. Many of us continue to be anxious 
Father, we thank you that you are so patient and forbearing with us. Father, give us grace to appropriate what Jesus not only promised to his disciples, but fulfilled for them as well. Increase our faith, Lord Jesus. And as we celebrate this Christmas season, let us not forget the great gifts that are already ours through our faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.